You're listening to the Inspire Podcast. For more information, visit inspire.church. Well, I trust that none of your family Christmas gatherings or Thanksgiving gatherings looks like that. We are starting a new series to take us through the Advent season that we are calling Who Needs Christmas? And I understand that just that question alone is probably something that uh, some of you may have uttered a time or two. Maybe in the midst of the Christmas chaos, the stress of shopping or all the different things that come with the season, you may just be like, I'm ready to just be done with this whole Christmas thing. We want to take the coming few weeks here and kind of dive into the uh, Christmas story, and we want to do it in a little bit of a different way because we want to cast some light on exactly what it is that we are celebrating and to do that, I want to start this morning and, and, and dive into kind of the start of the Christmas story. Because you see, as important as this story is, this is part of a bigger story. Um, those of us who are followers of Christ, uh, we recognize that, that Christ informs how we live our lives. The story of Christ and, and how he lived in this world should be a model that we choose to follow. But, but Christianity itself, it doesn't hinge on the stories of the actual birth of Christ. It hinges on the story of the resurrection of Christ. Uh, there are a lot of people that have been born in this world. Some have been born under some truly uh, extraordinary circumstances. But, but for us as followers of Christ, we recognize that the story of, of who Jesus is and what he said he could do hinges on his ability to both predict and then fulfill his own resurrection. As, uh, as somebody who walked on this earth. And yet, as unbelievable as this narrative, these birth narratives are that we find in Matthew and we find in the book of Luke, uh, when you understand the backstory behind the birth of Christ and behind the Christmas story, this unbelievable story becomes a remarkable story. Because you see, the Christmas story doesn't begin with a couple who's trying to figure out how they got pregnant it actually begins with a couple that worries that they will never, ever be able to get pregnant. The Christmas story doesn't begin with a couple that's trying to figure out where they're going to have this baby. The story begins with a couple who are pretty sure that they're never, ever going to have a baby. It doesn't begin with angels announcing the birth of the Messiah in Matthew or Luke. It actually begins about 2,000 years earlier with God making a promise in the book of Genesis. And the promise that God made was an incoherent, unbelievable, and an impossible promise. And we're going to explain exactly why that was. And this promise sets up the events of Christmas. And we're going to take a flyover from the book of Genesis and eventually land the plane in the birth narrative of Jesus, and we're going to try to do it all within the 30 or so minutes of this message, so stick with me. And I recognize that this flyover we're going to take is going to be probably very high level, and we're going to be covering a lot of details. So here's what I'm going to do, because some of the stuff we're going to be covering can feel rather historical at times. Do we have anybody who, out there who likes history? Any history buffs out there? Raise your hand loud and proud, all of the history geeks. All right. Uh, how about the rest of you? Do, how many of you like uh, puppies and kittens? 
Okay, then this morning we'll probably have something for everybody because here's what we're going to do. While we're covering some of these historical details to kind of make sure that I'm staying engaged with all of you, I'm going to just randomly throw up some little puppies and kittens on the screen. So like, like this, let's take a look at this one right here. Oh, look at that. Little Christmas puppies there. Who doesn't like Christmas puppies in stockings? How cute and adorable is that? So that's my strategy this morning. I'm telling you ahead of time. Okay, we're going to be covering some historical stuff. Some of the stuff may start to make your eyes glaze over. About the times that your eyes start to glaze over, I'm going to bring you back in with puppies and kittens. All right? Is that going to work? We'll see how that works there. All right, so we're going to begin this story of this promise because it begins in the book of Genesis. Genesis is the oldest document in this collection of documents that we have in our scriptures. And it is part, uh, part poetry, part uh, history, and it's, uh, it's several thousand years old. And it predates the birth of Christ by at least two to three, four thousand years old. So it begins in the history of the uh, Judeo-Christian faith with this one individual, his name was Abram. We know him better as Abraham, to which his, la- his name was later changed. And it begins with a promise that God made to an individual. And we read it in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It says this, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's house to a land that I will show you. This is important because for people in that nomadic culture, in that tribal culture, your family, your place of birth represented everything. You didn't wander from the place you were born from your family unless you had a very good reason or unless you were going somewhere and then coming back. It was important because of the dangerous landscape of history at that time. It was important that you had family and a tribe and people in your corner to protect you, to protect your assets, which usually involved your crop, your family, those things like that, your, your herd if you were a shepherd. So leaving your family was not something that you just kind of picked up and do. Here in our culture today, we don't think anything about that, right? I mean, most of us, or a lot of us, maybe once we graduate high school or college, we said, hey, we're not going to live, you know, in mom and dad's backyard. We're going to, like, go and move somewhere else. And some of you said, I'm going to move as far away as I can from mom and dad. I want to be on the other side of the country from them. And uh, so Abram here... He's being told by God, he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up your family, your herds, your crops, all these things that you own, your assets, your your earthly possessions, and I want you to go somewhere. Where am I going to go, God? I'm going to tell you when you get there. How encouraging is that, right? Not very encouraging. There's not a lot of details there. But there's a little bit more to the story because God makes an incoherent, impossible an unbelievable promise to Abram and to his wife, Sarai. He says this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Now, we read this with the benefit of hindsight, But I would like you for just a moment to pretend that you don't have the knowledge that you do of this man that we call Abraham and the legacy that he had behind him. Because in the moment 
Abram considered this promise from this God to be one that was incredibly ludicrous, incomprehensible, because both he and his wife were barren. In that culture specifically, being barren meant that your legacy ended with you and your family name, which was everything, ended with you. So this was incredibly tragic for Abram, for Sarai. And yet God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I can picture that Abram is saying, forget about being a great nation. I will settle for just being a great grandfather. If I could just have a child, but you're already talking far bigger than that. I'm going to make you into a great nation. He said, I will bless you. I will make your name great. And Abram and Sarai are saying, God, do you realize our name means nothing because when we die, our name dies with us. You, when you were born into this culture, you were not John. You were John, son of Jonah, son of whatever, and it, you traced your lineage back. That was your family identity. For Abram and for Sarai, they recognized that without children, they had no identity, no history, no legacy to pass on. And yet here comes this God making promises to some random individual, telling him to pick up everything, move everything, and that he was going to bless him, that he was going to make his name great. And he said, and you will be a blessing. The verse goes on, he says this, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And this promise is very interesting. He says this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In this time and culture, remember, this was very tribal. Everybody watched out for their own tribe. The tribe had each other's back. And all they were worried about was surviving and hopefully, eventually, thriving. They were not worried about the other tribes. There was no altruism in these early times because everybody was simply trying to survive and exist in their own family structure. And yet here comes a God who says, not only am I going to bless you and make your name great, but I'm going to bless other tribes, other nations through you. To which Abram is saying, why would I worry about blessing other tribes and other peoples? I don't feel particularly blessed myself because the one thing that meant the most to people in that time, they didn't have, which was a child, an offspring. And he sure as heck couldn't care about any other nations or tribes being blessed. And yet God is making this incredibly impossible, unbelievable, incoherent promise to this man named Abram, who we will later know as Abraham. Now, Abraham did something. Abraham believed the impossible. He believed the unbelievable. He took God at his word. He made some mistakes along the way. You only have to read through Genesis to read the account of some of the stupid things he did. But he moved his family 
And he took God at his word. And he believed the unbelievable. Now, of course, we know Abraham from our Sunday school stories and our song, Father Abraham had what? Many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, right? As a matter of fact, God did fulfill the first part of this promise, and he gave him a son. His son is Isaac. And Isaac was the child of blessing, born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Isaac had Jacob. And Jacob's name was later changed to Israel. Israel. And Jacob, through his children, then began this chain of events that began setting the stage for this nation, this kingdom that we know of as Israel. And one of Jacob's son, Joseph, in particular, factors into the story in a big way. We won't take a big dive into his story there. But Joseph winds up in Egypt. He manages to save his entire family in the midst of a famine. And so Abraham's offspring, this tribe, this growing family known as Israel and his descendants wound up in Egypt. Pretty soon, they began to be so prolific and so expansive in their family that the Egyptians began to worry because they said, these Israelites are, are multiplying a number. They're going to take us over. And so they do what you do in that time, and they enslaved them, and they put them to work building pyramids and all the different things. And we wind up with the story of the Exodus, and on the scene comes this guy named Moses, who supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A few uh, different Moses, maybe. Um, Moses shows up on the scene, and he says, as God's mouthpiece to Pharaoh, let my people go. The plagues happen through this miraculous set of events. This, this group of individuals migrate out of Egypt and into the wilderness. We have now gone from Genesis and into Exodus, and I've spent too much time already, so we've got a lot of books to go through here. So we're going to speed up and kind of start glossing over some of these details, right? But it started with this incredible, incoherent promise made to Abraham now his offspring are truly beginning to multiply. In the midst of Egypt, they don't feel very blessed. As a matter of fact, while they were in Egypt, they all but lost sight of who this God was to some distant forefather of theirs, Abraham. Who was this God? Because if he was any good, he would have protected us. Meanwhile, they're in Egypt and surrounded by gods everywhere. And to them, they said, their gods look a lot stronger than our God. God miraculously delivers them. They wind up in the wilderness. And through trial after trial, God begins to draw their hearts and woo them. And yet they still lose sight of who this God is and the promises that he has offered them. Because from as far as they could see, they were not thriving. They were not doing well. They were living in the wilderness. Throughout this time in the wilderness, they eventually wind up in this land that was a promised land. They begin to grow and establish themselves. Around 1050 BC, 
the Philistines are harassing this people groups and they install their first king. His name is Saul. And he's proclaimed as the first king of Israel. Saul had his faults and he was followed by what many consider to be the true original king of Israel, King David. And David follows Saul and he brings peace and stability to Israel. He establishes this kingdom. But it really isn't until his son comes along, Solomon, that they begin to thrive. And under Solomon's reign, Solomon was the builder king, and Solomon was the one that began to make Israel look like a force to be reckoned with. This nation that started out as a scrappy bunch of nobodies wandering the wilderness now all of a sudden had territory, <clears throat> they had enforcements, and Solomon was known as the wisest man around. People would show up from around the world to sit at his feet and learn from him. And yet in spite of all of Solomon's wisdom, he lost sight of the thing that made the nation of Israel great, which was their God. Because under Solomon, for a period of time, you could argue that maybe God was fulfilling this promise, that he was making his nation great, that he was blessing other people in the world through them. But God did not fulfill that promise through Solomon. He did fulfill another promise because he promised Solomon, if you reject me, if you worship other gods, if your heart is drawn away, I will split the kingdom asunder. Solomon, instead of following the God of his father and his forefathers, chose to marry the daughters of all of these other kingdoms. He had a harem that was quite large. He stockpiled wealth and military strength. And instead of worshiping God, and he built this incredible temple, but the temple was more of a showcase because then his heart was drawn away and he began to worship these other gods. And as a matter of fact, the kingdom was split in half. And so you have the kingdom of Israel that is now divided. The northern kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom is known as Judah. The military strength was, was crumbling. The economic forces were divided, the military, and they began to go into several hundred years of chaos. And this kingdom, this nation, this people that looked like they were starting to be something that dream very quickly died. You with me so far? About time for a Christmas puppy? Let's look at a Christmas puppy here. Oh, look at that Christmas puppy. There we go. There we go. Now we feel all Christmassy in the Christmas spirit again. All right. So, kingdom of Israel is divided. We're moving forward. Several hundred years of chaos. In the midst of this time, God began to send prophets, speakers of truth, to his people. One of those prophets was known as, his name was Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, this is a promise that God makes that sounds familiar to one he made earlier. He says this, I will also make you, speaking to the people of Israel, I will make you a light for the Gentiles. The Gentile is what their word was for a non-Jew, anyone who was not them. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation reaches the ends of the earth. Again, remember the people who are hearing this promise. 
Their kingdom has been divided. They are at a low point. Their kingdom is in chaos. They have no ruler. They, these kings pop up and are just as quickly deposed. There is no strength. There is nothing that they could look to. And yet in the midst of it, the prophets are saying things like, I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And Israel had to be thinking, we can't even light up our own lives. We can't even bring salvation to ourselves. How can we be a light to the Gentiles? How can we be a light to the world? Soon after that, the Syrians invaded, and the southern kingdom, Judah, became a vassal state to the Assyrian Empire. Another 300 years of chaos, of subjugation, go by. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, who you may recognize him from the stories of Daniel, come and they tear down part of the wall. They sack the city and Solomon's beautiful temple, the one thing that the people of Israel looked to as a sign of days gone by where things were good, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple. And as the temple is destroyed, the people of Israel could fear, feel the very last little bits of hope dying with it. The best and the brightest of all the people are carted off into captivity. It was a truly dark time. When you read Daniel and some of the stories there, there's passages in Daniel where it says that, that we hung our harps on the branches by the river. The harps represented their, their song, their joy. We hung our harps by the river and we wept. They mourned their past days, which were long behind them, and they had no hope for a brighter future. Things did not look good. Any promises that were offered to them by this God, Yahweh, sure didn't seem like they were coming true. There was no hope in Israel. There was no light for the nations. That unbelievable, incoherent, impossible promise that God had made to their forefather, Abraham, sure did not seem like it was coming true. This is a really dark part of the story, so we need our Christmas puppy, I think, to cheer us up there. Let's take a look at this one there. Oh, look at that one there. So cute. So in the midst of this chaos, at their lowest point, God sends another prophet. This prophet is known as Malachi. He says this, offering another promise. He says, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, says the Lord Almighty. To which Israel would respond, no, no. Your name is mocked among the nations. Your name is not praised. Your name is not revered. We have no standing in this world. We are subjects of another kingdom. We can't even keep our walls up. We can't even keep our temple operational. There is no Yahweh to which we can look because it seems like all these promises that come from the prophets, it seems like nothing is coming true. So when Malachi says this, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord, from where the sun rises to where it sets, the people of Israel just had to say, 
to themselves, I, I just don't see how that's going to be true. No one is looking at us and saying, I, will, I want to worship their God. I want what they have. It wasn't happening. Unbeknownst to them, at this time, Alexander the Great was about to unify all of the Greek states. He would be the king of one of the largest kingdoms to date. His name would be great. You could almost imagine the people at that time. Yeah, we know about this guy. He's doing something. He's, he's building this empire. We were nobodies. Any of our best days are behind us. There's nothing that we have to look forward to. This prophecy from Malachi would be a joke to the people of Judah. At this time, they'd already been overrun by Assyria. They'd been in captivity prior to that in Egypt. They'd been overrun by Babylon, by Persia, and now the Greeks were coming. So their story keeps going from bad to worse. Just to make sure we're still with us, let's take a look on the screen here. We got, oh, we got a Christmas kitten now. How cute is that? You know, I, I feel like cats have gotten a bad rap here at Inspire. And I want to clarify where we stand on this, because in our statement of beliefs, we probably need to make sure that you're aware of it. When we're talking about something like original sin, we believe that everything is born in the image of God. And cats, when they are born as kittens, they are cute and adorable. Their souls are still pure and clean before they grow up to become cats. So that's why I can show you kittens, and kittens are still cute and adorable. Who doesn't love a kitten? I mean, come on, a little basket of kittens there? So adorable. Now, when kittens grow up, they actually grow up to become this, a cat. And this is what cats do. You won't see your dog climbing up in your tree. Yeah. Oh, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. Oh, there we go. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, let's go back. Let's see the kitten again there. We got the kitten back. Oh, there we go. Now we're better. All right. So kittens and puppies and kingdoms that are falling and a lack of hope everywhere, darkness all around. Do you have the paradox going on here? Here's where we're at now. Where were we? Malachi. So Malachi makes this proclamation from God. And this book, which is the last book of what we would consider the Old Testament, this book ushers in a period of history within the Judeo-Christian faith of 400 years of silence from the prophet Malachi until we pick up the story in the Gospels. There's 400 years. Now, a lot's happening. We're going to tell you in a minute of all the things that are happening. But during this time, to our knowledge, there are no prophets, at least none that we have had any uh, writings preserved from. And it seems like God is silent. It seems like Yahweh, the God of Israel, has exited the scene. Here's what's happening during this 400 years of silence. In 430 BC, the Jews had returned to Israel from the Babylonian captivity. Now, they returned as merchants, not as shepherds. This is an important distinction because this was a shepherding people group and their, their very identity 
with the sheep and the land was taken away from them. But they returned to Israel as merchants, not as shepherds. And the Medo-Persian Empire still ruled Israel. In 333 BC, Israel falls to the Greeks. In 323 BC, Israel then falls to the Egyptians. The Jews generally fared well during these reigns. They were still under captivity, but it wasn't terrible. It was during this time that many in the uh, southern kingdom adopted the Greek language and uh, the Greek customs and manners. And in Egypt, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, which is the Septuagint. This is why when we have the Old Testament, much of it is in Hebrew, but then you have the New Testament Greek. This is this transition of power that's happening as the Greco-Roman Empire is expanding during this time. In 204 BC, Antiochus the Great of Syria, he captures Israel. He and his successor, Antiochus Epiphanes, persecuted the Jews, ruled over this kingdom with an iron fist, and to further add insult to injury, began to sell the priesthood. So the very last remnants of religious identity that these people had began to slip away. The very last piece of sacredness to them was gone as the priests became no longer mouthpiece for God, but became political appointments. The people during this time are suffering. They are feeling the absence of God and it feels like nothing is happening to which that they can look to with any hope. And in 171 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, he desecrates the temple, leading to the Maccabean Revolution in 165 BC when the Jews recaptured Jerusalem. Got time for one more Christmas puppy to keep us back in here, it's feeling dark. Oh, we got a Christmas puppy and a kitten, look at that. How special is that? Okay, going back. Fighting continued between the Jews and the Syrians. In 63 BC, the Romans gained control of Israel. Pompey the Great rides in and to, again, further add insult to injury, he rides his horse right up the Temple Mount. He unmounts from his horse and he wanted to see what this God was that these Jews followed. And so he wanted to go into the temple to the God vault which is any people group at that time had their sacred place, these boxes or these special chests where they would keep their idols. And once a year or at feast times or a special time, they would bring their idols out to worship and uh, offer sacrifices to those things. And they would keep these idols in very safe places. These were the most sacred things to the peoples at the time. So Pompey the Great says, I want to see this God of these people that we just conquered. And he walks in to the Holy of Holies, the inner court of the temple. And of course, it's empty because the Jews have no idol. They have no physical representation of this God, Yahweh. And he scoffs, he laughs. How stupid are these people? They, what, a, what a stupid religion. What a stupid group of people. No wonder you were conquered. Fightings continued, and in 47 BC, under Roman rule, Caesar installed Antipater, the procreator of Judea. You would know his son 
because Antipater began the Herodian dynasty. And his son is Herod the Great, the same Herod that we read about in the beginning of this account when we read how a baby is born and Herod feels uncomfortable that someone else could be challenging his authority. So we've now went through these couple thousand years of history, but for the people living in that place and time, before the birth of Christ, if they were to look back and reflect on their scriptures, they would say, for sure, all the nations would not be blessed through Abraham. I don't see any evidence of it. Israel would not be a light to the Gentiles. We can barely keep a light for ourselves. And the Jewish God would not be worshipped throughout the world because very clearly the Romans have showed us how little strength our God has. And that backstory is what makes the story of Christmas so remarkable. Because when things were at their very darkest, the light of the world came on the scene. The prophet Isaiah says it this way, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. We read this. Again, it's traditionally associated with the very first week of Advent. Isaiah 9, 2. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That Christmas hymn we sang earlier in service, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, written by Charles Wesley. It's not just a Christmas carol. It was the heart's cry of the people living in darkness, in captivity. For the Jewish people, they had no hope. The God of Abraham had forsaken them. There was no light to the Gentiles. There was no great name among the nations. They were a laughingstock. They were a conquered people. They were nobodies. And on the stage of history, God chose this man Abraham and his seemingly insignificant descendants to tell the story of hope that we know today. And at the lowest of low points, at the darkest part of the dark, in Luke 1, it says this, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was what? How do we know that? Here we are sitting a couple thousand years removed. We know her name. Other names in history have long since been forgotten or relegated to the footnotes. And yet this one teenage girl living in a conquered land, part of a conquered people group with no hope, is visited. The angel went to her and he said, Greeting you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now, hear what the angel said through the ears of the people who were living at her time, right? Because when she hears that, she says, no, 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 no one in this part of the world, none of my people feel very favored. None of us feel like the Lord is with us. 
But that's the message of hope. Verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. And his kingdom will never end. An everlasting kingdom. Because you see, the message of hope, the truly remarkable thing about the story of Christmas is that the promise that God made to Abraham 2,000 years earlier was in this moment beginning to come true. He said all of the nations would be blessed through Abraham. And now, through the Jewish people and the faith that we now hold, because we, as followers of Christ, worship and serve a Jewish Messiah that we believe is God's son in this earth. That message of hope has extended to the ends of the earth. He promised Abraham that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles. Most of us, you and I, are probably in this room Gentiles. That light has shone for us. And he said the Jewish God would be worshipped throughout the world and now to the ends of the earth you can find places of worship that worship Jesus Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, the promised one that was promised to Abraham and his descendants 2,000 years earlier. You see, the reason the Old Testament is so precious to us as followers of Christ is because the stories of the Jewish people it was the cocoon from which would be birthed and from which would emerge the Messiah, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Christmas story began 2,000 years before the very first Christmas. And here's what's cool. The Christmas story continues 2,000 plus years later because it's still unfolding for you and for me. So who needs Christmas? Well, God decided that the world needed Christmas. God decided that in the midst of the darkness that happened to exist in that time and place in human history, that a light needed to be born. And for a people group who felt all but forgotten, it was in the midst of that very people group that Jesus was born not to a family of nobility, not to a family with wealth or influence, but to a lowly carpenter and an unwed, unwed teenage mother on the run for their lives. This is why in the first week of Advent, we light this candle and each week we continue to light it because we celebrate the fact that into the darkness a light has come. We celebrate the fact that the world needs Christmas and God decided to bring a message of hope. He decided to tell that story of hope over the course 
of thousands of years of human history, and now you and I are here as a result of it. How amazing is that? Can I close us with a word of prayer? God, we thank you for this story of Christmas, this incredibly improbable, incoherent, impossible promise that you made to Abraham so many thousands of years ago. We have the benefit of looking back with hindsight over the years of history, and we could see how this story unfolds. And that hindsight gives us a perspective that we sometimes don't have over our very own lives because we neglect to see how you are even telling the story of Christmas and giving hope to us here and now because that story of Christmas is still unfolding today and we're a part of it. So we celebrate the gift of your light and love that came into the darkness and extends to the ends of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.